You're listening to Tove, a podcast about the good place and Jewish ideas. Hey, this is John Spirasavet, and I am with Professor Todd May. Todd, thank you so much for coming to talk with me today. Oh, John, thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. We have, you are the second Good Place Insider that we've had on this podcast. The first was Eric Kissack, editor on the show. And so this will be different from some of the things that we do. I'm sure the listeners will have figured out this is not about a particular episode. We'll, we'll range around. So actually, for most of us who are the, the, the rabbis and Jewish educators, we, rather than talk about what we do and where we work and stuff, we have this other opening questions. And we're actually very interested in what you do specifically, but but I will ask you the question that we always talk about the first time someone appears in a season, which is, of all the Good Place characters, who do you think you're most like? Ah, okay. That's the, that's actually not the question I usually get asked about the characters. Ooh, yeah. Uh, the one I usually get asked is, who do I like the most? Oh, uh, yeah. Not who the, who I am the most like. Not Chidi, first off, because Chidi can't make a decision. And I'm one of the fools who rushes in. Wow. So in that sense, I, I, I would say I've got some of Eleanor's spontaneity, but trying to carry some of Chidi's moralism. So if you had if you had to choose one, because which is you know rabbis like to say, well, we're all a mix of you know all of them. If you had to, if you had, if the pie chart, which had the biggest slice, do you think? Yeah, here's I would say Eleanor by like the third season. Oh yeah. Okay, so she's jumping in. She's trying to do things. She's trying to organize things, but she's got a bit of moral background that she didn't have before she was in a good place. Mm. And then the other question would be uh, maybe more like the one you usually get, which is which of the characters do you wish you were more like than you already are? Okay. I, I think in a way still bad Janet. Ooh. <laughs> Cause bad Janet doesn't care. And so she's not, she's not worried about what people think of her. She's not worried about what impression she's leaving. And that's that, that's a quality that I I sort of admire in people. I do, I, I do have a a passing I guess, I guess passing admiration for Disco Janet. Uh-huh. Uh, she only spent like twenty seconds on the screen, <laughs> so I can't say much about it. Was Bad Janet had a fuller character. <laughs> it's uh, interesting because I did listen the other day again, as I was telling you, to your interview with uh, Mark Evan Jackson on the official podcast, which I definitely encourage everybody to listen to. And and you were there with with William Jackson Harper, who, and there was some little bit about there about the his dim view perhaps of humanity, and then and then you were asked, I think, would you invite him to come as a guest lecturer in your course. And you said, well, maybe someone with such a dim view of humanity, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have. <laughs> so yeah, bad although, Janet, wow. Yeah. Although, yeah, I, I would have bad Janet come lecture. Oh, wow. <laughs> what would she, would she lecture? Would she just insult the uh, fat dinks or whatever? The- well, here's the thing. I, I win either way because she lectures, it could be interesting if she insults them. It looks so much better <laughs> to her, right? That the students will be grateful about it. <laughs> so so we could back up and talk about kind of where you are and what you're what you're doing now as a as a philosopher where are you situated so I, i'm living in nashville now i 
retired this year from 30 years of teaching. And so now we're sort of making life in retirement. I'm still writing. I actually have a book coming out in the spring and just you know, doing little bits and pieces of stuff. I'm teaching ESL online, Meals on Wheels, and then teaching a course at a little college, a little liberal arts college called Warren Wilson College. Mm. And and the book is coming out. It is about the vulnerable life. Is that what it's? No, no. This this one is this is called care. It's it's oh with, care. It, it's I'm misreading care. my notes in front of me. Yeah, I wrote. Yeah, it's, it's care for it coming. Reflections yeah. on who we are. And yeah, it's it's a it's a new press. The book that made it into the good place was the book on death, and it came out of a press called Acumen Press. And Acumen Press was sold to a larger press under the agreement that the founder of Acumen Press wouldn't do any philosophy for a couple of years because he's mm-hmm. good at this, right? So the two years was up and they contacted me and they asked, would you write a, a little book about care, about the nature of care and care ethics and, and care and vulnerability? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so that I did that. And that's coming out in the spring with this, with this press. And it's a press in Britain, although it's, it's being distributed through Columbia University Press. Hmm. That's great. Congratulations. Mazel tov. Well, yeah, thanks. No, I'm looking forward. To, yeah. I never get tired of seeing my name on it. Really <laughs> well, that's actually, I'm going to bring you maybe to that to that matter in a, in a moment. I, I know that in other interviews, you've talked about your good place origin story, how you got into the show, because you obviously were involved in the show before it was a show, right? No, no, actually, actually. The, I got involved in the middle of the first season. Oh. The other advisor, Pamela Hieronymi, was involved before the show, but I got involved in the first season. It was during the season, I guess early on in the first season that Maestro read my book on death. And that's when he contacted me. And so I, my advising role started basically with the second season. And had you been watching the show independently or heard about the show or anything? Never heard of it. Yeah. I knew nothing about it until I got the email from, from Mike. And then I did some research and I didn't know who he was. And I found out who he was and mentioned to my spouse that we were going to talk. He said, do, do you want to do a phone call? And I said, once I found out who he was, I said, let's do a Zoom meeting. Or I said, then it was a Skype meeting. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned to my spouse, I said, look, this guy doesn't know it yet, but I'm going to be on the set. <laughs> And lo and behold. (laughs) So, wow. So there was not a thing. It wasn't that every ethical philosophy professor got on the phone and said, hey, there's this new TV show and they're talking about they're talking about our stuff all the time. Well, either either that or I just don't get out enough because I I hadn't heard anything about it. And then I sort of once I, you know, once I found out about it, I jumped in. But I think it also gained notoriety among philosophers as the seasons went on, because, you know, philosophers are not known for their intersection with public popular culture. Mm-hmm. So you have, you are Jewish, or you have a Jewish heritage, we were talking Yeah, about. I have a Jewish heritage. So my mother's Jewish. It's a background from that side. My father comes from the Midwest, and I grew up in New York. So mm-hmm. I grew up in Jewish culture, but my family was secular. Was there any, like, Jewish thoughts, you know, for putting aside Jewish practice and stuff like that in your you know, Jewish philosophy or anything kicking around in your earlier life? Well, I mean, there was, you know, there were several aspects of Jewish culture that, that I think infiltrated 
right, into you know, my, my own way of thinking about things. So one was a, a social justice orientation, and the second was a, a healthy dose of irony. I think both of those have become you know, aspects of my personality that are, I think, related to the, the Jewish culture that I was immersed in. I went to a, a private high school called Horace Mann School, yeah, sure. ironically named after the founder of public education. And <laughs> the, but it was, I don't know, 80% Jewish, maybe, right? It was heavily Jewish. I went to an elementary school called Horace Mann, which in St. Paul, Minnesota, it was a public school and it was not 80% Jewish. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. although I had some Jewish classmates, who were <laughs> <laughs> yeah, among my yeah. close friends. Wow. You know, I was going to ask you, as an ethical philosopher, what you think about envy as a, I don't know, as a virtue or vice. Do you have any view on that? Well, I mean, John, if we if we distinguish envy from jealousy, then I think we can look at this a little more clearly. Right? Je- hmm. Jealousy is envy to the point where you're unhappy that someone else has that quality that you don't have or doesn't have that quality that you do have and wish you didn't. Yeah. But an envy is just somehow it, it, it's sort of one step from admiration, right? That this person has something that you would like to have. And that's the, that's the envy part if it doesn't pass over Mm. uh, into jealousy. So in that sense, I think envy can be a, a, a morally motivating force. This, this, I, I wish I were like that person. I envy that person's qualities. And so I don't think in itself it's, it's a problem until it passes over into jealousy. And it has possible positive aspects. Because the downside to envy is that if envy doesn't involve appropriating any of the characteristics, then you can wind up just feeling depressed about yourself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I ask you this because I have said, and I'm not speaking for any of the other people who participated in this podcast, that w- one of the things that converted me from thinking about, uh, it's fun to teach about the good place in in my work as a teacher sometimes of Jewish ethics, that's, you know, that's good, to thinking, oh, I'll do a podcast. And I thought, the people who made the good place, they reach many, many multiples more people than I do with ideas that I like to teach about. and And I admire that, and I envy that. And then I thought that we could just, I could just take a ride on their, on their coattails. That's the wrong metaphor, a sort of draft on their yeah. whatever. And that if, you know, 1% or 0.1% of all, even their Jewish listeners of the good place or Jewish watchers would find their way to this podcast, they could, you know, could teach them a little bit about some Jewish stuff. And at least as of today, December, 2022, that hasn't happened. Nothing like that. So I don't know if that has purged me of some envy because I'm continuing to do this anyway, even though... <laughs> Well, it sounds like it sounds as though the envy actually was a positive motivating force for you. Yes. And I think that, and actually one of the questions that I have about the the good place, and I'm not holding you responsible for anything that they they write about, is I, I do think that in Jewish thought, bad motivations and even vices that are not good can be channeled, you know, toward good things. We had a whole episode of of when when the good place in season one had that sort of what's my motivation thing. We we talked about that, what we call the Yetzer Tov and the Yetzer Ra, you know, this kind of an energy in us that's also envious as well as one that's generous and and stuff and and I'm all for harnessing the the uh, you know the envious energies toward something good and it seems to me like the where we are in this season 3 season 4 thing in the good place is that is that motivation is a problem once you've decided that the only reason you're doing good things is to get rewarded in the afterlife that that sort of disqualifies you 
And is that is that just a a shtick for the plot? Do you think when you watch the show, or do you think that's a real issue? Well, I, I think that it, I think it's complicated on the show, and it's complicated by the point system, and because the, the point system is one that that you may be trying to do the good thing, but you there are all kinds of consequences that you're unaware of. So there's one point where Michael is talking to the judge and says, look, you try to buy an apple or a tomato. And there's, you know, they, how did it get transported here? You know, what was the status of the workers who picked it? You don't know all the consequences. So the idea is then that you try, you're trying, and that's the motivation. You're trying to do the right thing. But in trying to do the right thing, that can go in different directions. So for instance, if we think of it in a Kantian sense, that's having just having the right motivation, acting on the right principle. And that's where Chidi gets stuck because Chidi doesn't know what the right principle is. He's constantly searching for the right principle with exceptions. And, and this is why Mike Schur tilted a bit over to Aristotle over the course of the writing, because his take on Aristotle was that you're trying to develop certain characteristics and you're going to fail, but you try to do better the next time and become a slightly better person. So if we talk about motivation as simply a matter of acting on the right, the right rational principle, you can get stuck. Mm. If we talk about motivation simply as being for your own good, that, and that would be early Eleanor, mm-hmm. you get stuck there. But if you talk about trying as being motivated to be a better person, knowing that you're going to fail a lot, and, and, and using that as a kind of motivation. Then I think the show is okay with how they think motivation is going. But there is this implicit contrast between other kinds of motivation mm-hmm. that occur on the show, the self-serving one from the early El- Eleanor and the Kantian one that can't seem to settle on the right principle. Hmm. When they get to the point in in early season three, I guess, where they, you know, where they run into Janet and Michael, who they think are are somebody else, and they and they, I guess it's the Jeremy Bermy episode where they sort of, you know, have to spill the beans and say, well, if we tell you, I guess it's if we tell you, we'll kill your eternal souls. I suppose not if we tell you, we have to kill you. That that struck me as 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 I guess flaw, you know, that I wish. You know, it's fun, but I thought maybe isn't a principle that I could adopt because, you know, an awareness of as much of what's going on in the universe as possible is could be helpful if, you know, and it shouldn't rule you out for being able to cultivate these other motivations. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm sympathetic with that idea. One, one of the things that they're constantly were navigating was the, in, the eternality of it all. And so they... In, the, in my book on death, one of the things that Mike found compelling was my claim that we need to be mortal in order for our existence to be meaningful, which is why the show ended the way it did. Almost everybody actually was mortal, even in the good place. But that morality helps you navigate your mortality. And so when you transfer that into an immortal being, then things become a lot more complicated and the question of motivation occurs. Now it, 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 there is the episode, I think it's in the second season, the existentialist episode Mm. uh, where Michael realizes that there is a way for him to be mortal. And once he does that, it introduces themes that would be harder to introduce 
if he just stayed immortal. Hmm. But it seems to me, John, that that immortality, that the immortality complicates all of the issues of morality. And sometimes it goes to odd places. So it's, it's interesting. I, I did, I did what rabbis do, which was to quickly consume something for, for, for my purposes, I should say what some synagogue rabbis as myself, I don't want to, and I read your book on death too quickly, but I did, I did read it. And it's, it made me wonder about, I've been wondering the whole time, whether the good place has anything to do with death, because all the action, except for season three, everything that happens, all of their learning, all their experience is really shown to us primarily while they're, while they're not alive, or at least they're, they're not conventionally alive on earth. And, and yet the factors that you say in your book make it impossible, may, would make it impossible, impossible for an immortal, you know, to, to grow or flourish and seem like are happening to them in this other place. I mean, do you think The Good Place is a show about the afterlife in, in any sense? Well, that's a, that's a good question, John, and a tough one to answer. Let, let, me, let me approach it this way. After my discussions with Mike and after his reading the book and, and thinking about the issues, he did start to introduce mortal or mortal-like elements into the show, one of them being for Michael. The other one there is that if, if you go to the bad place, right, that's a certain kind of ending as well, right? An ending of the ability to actually construct your life, right, in a meaningful way. And so there are endings that creep in, right, even before the last episode where you know, the endings just happen. So th- there is that. There, there are, I mean, there are endings that come in. But there's another, there's another part of the question I want to ask. John, bring it back to me again. Oh boy, I said, is the good place? Is the good place about death and the afterlife? How the growth that's happening for at least our four or our four plus two is happening, not in the conventional right. earthly timeline. Right, and, and the. Part of the, I think, initial motivation for them is that they would like to avoid the bad place. But what happens is they grow together. And as they grow together, they become concerned just to be better. And this is an interesting take on Aristotle's own view. I don't think that Mike was thinking about this as he was designing the show. But for Aristotle, in order for a person to be able to flourish, there has to be a community around them. He, say, he says that ethics is a part of political theory, of political philosophy, right? And so for a person to flourish in the Aristotelian sense, they need teachers, they need a, a, a community that will be supportive enough for them to be able to do it. But for Aristotle, that involves other people who are already flourishing. Hmm. Now, what happens in the good place is implicitly an argument that Aristotle is right about the necessity for community, but wrong about needing people who are already flourishing. Mm-hmm. Because these people, the, the four people don't get better without one another. They need one another to make themselves better. But every one of them is deeply flawed. And so what the show seems to, uh, seems to, to well, what it seems to show is that deeply flawed people informing a community together can make one another better. Mm. Uh, that making one another better isn't always in the face of death. It can be through the relationships themselves that they make one another better. So death seems to me something that you need in order 
for there to be a meaningfulness in your life. But you can, I think, be moral without necessarily being, without necessarily having mortality force you to be there. I think it's a motivator, mm. but, but there can be other things that will bring you there, including community. Mm. Yeah. And I, I think if I, as I said, in a skim understood your book that in, in a way, what you're saying is that for at least the season one, or probably all of them, the, the humans, it may not be death in the sense that they're already, so to speak, dead, but they do know that there's a, something's hanging in the balance, you know, yeah. their, their next phase, you know, could end. And that's sort of like death, like what we call death. And, but I think what you've said also is that, death, is that most people don't actually, you know, consciously use death as a motivator because of all the different ways we're avoiding dealing with that. And is that right? No, yeah, no, that's, that, that's right. We don't, we, we don't think about death and yet we do things which are moral and we do them not in, in the light of death and not even thinking about death. I, I think that death brings some urgency to mm. our life. And that's where a lot of the meaningfulness comes in. And the idea that, look, I can't, if I'm, I, I, I'm not immortal, so I can't be like a jerk for 10,000 years and then be great for the next million. Mm. So I think it brings a certain urgency in, but I think that urgency is only one of the elements tied up with our trying to be morally decent people. Mm. So I have had a, a running conversation with a bunch of my conversation partners on the podcast about, about Jeremy Barra for two reasons. And one of which is, and again, I'm not assigning you responsibility for this either, but here, here I've got you. One is that I, I just think I'm very, maybe I'm very pre-Copernican or something. I think of time as unfolding in this sort of linear way. And how can you learn if you're not aware of something, you know, previous? And and I know that we're not, we're, there's lots of stuff that happens in our lives that we're not just aware of. I mean, we it has affected us and we don't even know how. But, but the sense and where I think the show, you know, ends up at the very end where you get you know, kind of as many reruns as you need, which is a which is a wonderfully appealing idea. I think that I know that I often quote the, you know, as long as you're not a a murderous dictator or the manager of a boy band, I think you're in the band of humanity <laughs> who could <laughs> who's eligible for <laughs> for try. Even Brent seems to he's gonna take him a long time, but he has a long time, has as many times as as I guess he needs, as long as he doesn't start to manage a boy band. <laughs> I mean, does that make sense to you? Or are you like, oh, okay, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean the, the Jeremy Barramy was you know, it, it, it was a way of it was a joke and a way of dealing with like the immortality and the different lives and just trying to throw Chidi off, right? It was trying to get like a mental grasp on that thing. But but Brent, by the way, based on do you know whom? Is is it then Judge Kavanaugh? Was that yes. yeah. Kavanaugh. Right. That yeah. The the idea that you can be that you get other chances is an appealing one if we're, you know, if we're thinking about a, a kind of re Buddhist reincarnation, almost that you get the difference being that in, in you know in, in a Buddhist reincarnation, what you do decides where you're going to be next, right? Whereas here, you know, what you do sets we could say certain challenges for you mm -hmm. in the next life, right? Yeah, and it's a, it's an attractive notion. I'm not a I'm not a believer in the afterlife, so I, I take it as a as a kind of just exercise mm. that if the universe was designed in such a way that we kept getting reincarnated, that that would be certainly a fairer way to do it. 
And of course, the contrast here is with the very utilitarian take with the point system, hmm. where you get, you know, you get one chance, it, it, like the, the house is stacked against you, uh, hmm. and, and, you know, everybody screws up. In, in a way, which you're, some of what you're saying, I think, about death gets encapsulated in, in Sean at the very end, who, who Michael, I think, confronts, you know, in one of the last episodes. And, you know, and Sean sort of ends up buying into that this project is more interesting than his project, where death is just the end, you know, eternal torture. And yeah, uh, and, and, of- yeah and it says, you know, like, you know, like the first few times you do butt spiders, but it's really <laughs> fine, right? But, you know, like, you know, after thousands of years, it gets kind of old. <laughs> So can I, 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 boy, in my, on my notes here, the questions seem to flow in order, but they're, they're not. Can I ask you a couple of like philosopher questions? Yeah, sure. Sure. Uh, So one is Rabbi Moses Maimonides, who, do you know much about Maimonides? Do you know more than I do? No, but I'm I'm keen to learn what you're going to say. No, because I've been thinking, you know, a, a number of years ago, I was, I was starting to look at these sources articulated by Maimonides about teshuva, about this idea that, you know, how change and, and improvements in, of, a, of an individual is framed classically in the Jewish tradition. And he, and he has a definition, which on the one hand, you know, kind of, I don't know if it's deontological, you know, he says, you know, you arrive at the same decision point or something that's very parallel. You recognize you're in that situation. You sort of break out both the the uh, kind of clouding motivations and also, you know, situational factors. And you can sort of get yourself in a free will position where you say, ah, I recognize this. I did it wrong then. I know how to do it right now. I'm choosing to do it correctly now. And, and he recognizes that there are countervailing forces that could be emotions or they could be external and, and, uh, you know, sort of intrigued by that model. But, but I, I just the other day sort of thought about Maimonides is a guy who he writes this in a code of law that is, incredibly detailed. I mean, Jewish law with not only 613 commandments, but every, every variation on it, on every one of them. And, and he writes a code and this is in his code. He has a, he has a sort of a treatise on virtues and moral education that are at the start that are legalized and are the start of his code. And that's a kind of Aristotelian thing attached to a rule based thing. And then he has this fascinating thing about he actually talks about points and like how your actions amount up and you get sort of a grace period if you do the same wrong thing you know once it doesn't necessarily count against you but if you do it you know and then if you can how can you earn points back he doesn't i mean it's not thoroughly pursued but but it just occurred to me the other day that he's in a sort of an attempt to mash up all these philosophies together and was there a question in there? Probably not. I don't even know what I was. But well, let <laughs> me, let me yeah. ask you. In, in, in the course of this, does he talk about the role of community in one, say, moral education or moral growth? He talks about the importance of a community of, I guess, of chachamim, of wise people. You know, people who are all working on their own project of, of ethical improvement. And studying Torah is how he would put it, and and he has different ways of describing what I think what friendship is like in that community. He was not a cuddly guy, so it doesn't sound at all sweet, you know, on his on his page. But but I think what he's done is, in a lot of ways, is transcribe Aristotle, from what I understand. And I am not a scholar of any of these things, but I think most of his theory of of virtue and 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 growth is is just kind of adaptation that way. Sure. And yeah, 
Yeah, yeah well, and, and what you describe is, is, is a kind of Aristotelian type community, and Aristotle was hardly cuddly himself. <laughs> is that true? Because it's a cool name. Like, I envision him as like a, a guy tossing a football. I don't know. So. Yeah, no, he, here's the thing, right? He, he, he didn't think women were like fully human, like men. Uh, he was perfectly okay with slaves. And he thought that very few people wound up flourishing, that you had to be kind of special in order to, re, in order to, to really flourish. And he thought of friendship as, it's, friendship wasn't sharing a vulnerability. That wasn't part of, of the you know, true friendship for Aristotle. That was, it was simply people making people better. Right. So it had much more to do with challenging than it had to do with support. You know, one of the things I think that I, I think that I must have skimmed past something on Amazon from one of your other books, in addition to the the death book, but I, I sort of understood you also to be saying that even like we can't describe ourselves only as the, the projects we have that are good or getting better. We can't only describe ourselves through the moment to moment experiences, like there is a, there's a sort of an X factor. And so it's not just that we can't sum up our points, but we also can't, there's, there's something else, you know, on top of all of it. And, and I think that you wrote in one thing that you used to, you started off hating Aristotle and you came to, to really appreciate him. Is that right? Yeah. 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 The, the, it was a student of mine who basically kept pressing me. And I, I had read some Aristotle in graduate school but never really sat with the ethics. And he's like, dude, you really need to sit with the ethics. And so that's when I did. And so, you know, and so not that I agree with all of it, but lots of things that seem to me deeply insightful. And so in that sense, I use, even though my own moral view is much more pluralist than Aristotle's, I still find myself coming back to him in different ways, often, often in different projects. I'll ask you the other, like, just philosophy expert question. And then if you've got time back to a couple other things, which is, I think the one episode where we found ourselves ill-equipped that people do in the podcast here was about Kierkegaard, which I realized all I knew was like leap of faith, theological suspension of the ethical. Yeah. And I didn't really know when any of those things meant. Is there a... Yeah. Can you, can you explain I, I, them? <laughs> I can give you the box up version of that. There is, by the way. Then we'll go back and redo that episode. <laughs> the, there is a whole, Chidi's whole rap is on YouTube, right? I, have, I think we linked it actually. Yeah. yeah, it's... yeah. It's, uh, I didn't know about this. And then Will told me, no, it's on, it's on YouTube. Because I kept saying, I need the rap. I need the whole thing. And yeah. And in any event, so Kierkegaard's writing in the wake of Hegel. And for Hegel, there's a system, right? And that system is such that you can reach the highest ethical plane in that system. And it's rational, right? The high, that the, the system is rational, that when you reach the highest plane, that's rational. People argue about whether in fact he thought there was an absolute, but surely Kierkegaard's view was that there was a highest place for Hegel and it was rational. And Kierkegaard thought that that was the, the plane of the ethical, okay? But that in one's relationship to God, it was had to go somehow beyond that. And that beyond that was a suspension of the ethical for the telos of something higher. And that's the individual's relationship to God. Uh, so the teleological suspension of the ethical 
was a suspension of the highest for something that was the personal relationship to God. So that was the telos of the suspension. And he uses the Abraham story because the Abraham story can't seem to be justified ethically. And what Kierkegaard says is Abraham has to believe that God has really commanded him to sacrifice Isaac on the one hand, but on the other hand, that God will not ask this of him. And so that's not a rational combination of beliefs. So there has to be a suspension of the rational, right, for something higher. Is that, is that helpful at all, John? Yeah, yeah, it is. You know, I, I would say that, uh, you know, for the listeners, I, I think that's, you know, perspective that uh, that Abraham or that the Bible could be used to somehow justify any sort of circumnavigating or temporary suspension of the ethical is 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 horrifying so just don't want anybody to take that yeah. away as some kind and and but I, it also made me wonder if the show kind of got it right because they they so use that those both the existential crisis and I think the leap what they read the leap to faith when they, you know, which they see as kind of a, I think a game theory exercise, but they, it's deeply ethical. It's deeply about Michael's connection to them. They, Eleanor figures out that he's trying to save them and none of the rest of them quite believe that, but it's, it seems very ethical, you know, it's circuitous and and strategic, but. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. And I don't yeah. think the show, it, it didn't go in the, 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 the Cure direction, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it went, well, let me backtrack a little bit. So in the existentialism episode, the, the background there, the, the, the hidden theorists come up. And so for Camus, you, you recognize the absurdity of things. And you, there are two forms of suicide you can engage in. One is physical suicide. And the other is what you call philosophical suicide, which is you pretend that the things aren't as absurd as they, as they actually are, that, that the universe isn't silent in the face of the human need for meaning. So you impose a meaning. So you try to escape. And what Michael does is he tries to escape. It's, you know, he, he goes in, into sort of a, a philosophical suicide. Everything is fine. Everything is cool. I don't have to worry about this, right? So he does that, right? But the, the show, and I've, I've described it and now lost my point. Bring me back, John. <laughs> this, show, that, this is how I talk. You're, you're taking on, unfortunately, my bad characteristics <laughs> just, for, just for this hour, I'm sure. No, is the show... The, like it seemed like the the language of Kierkegaard, Eleanor was using, yeah, yeah. and was really ethical. I mean, ultimately, he wouldn't yeah. abandon us, you know. Yeah. So right. So the, 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 he has the crisis. That's where I was going to go. Hmm. Uh, but but at the end of the crisis, where he turns is not toward a revolt against the absurdity of the universe, which would be the kind of Camus thing, but rather toward a position that's more nearly ethical. But the, the, the role that the crisis serves for him after the, the Camus moment is to bring him face to face with the stakes, the stakes for him. To bring Michael, is that what you're saying? Oh, Michael, Michael, yeah, right. Yeah. The, stakes, the stake for him, the urgency of acting well since he can be you know, dispersed. And so he goes through the crisis, but at the end of the crisis, he winds up at somewhere that's more moral. And that's, I think, reflective of the way that Mike Scher took up the book, which is the idea that we, that in the face of death, we become, we come face to face with the urgency of our lives. And the question is, what are we going to do then? So, so Kierkegaard would not have said, you know, that the, you sort of take a, 
a teleological break, which helps you have a better understanding of the wider ethical frame of your life. That's not that's not what he's saying. No, no, he he was he'd be much more concerned with the 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 individual relationship with God. No, he doesn't want to dismiss the ethical, right? He he doesn't say that we just should abandon the ethical. The the suspension is for something higher, and that's the individual's relationship with God. So it's not as though the ethical goes away, but it's rather that there is something beyond the ethical that can be suspended for the relationship with God, and there's the trust in God. And the idea is that Abraham can't talk about this because language is constructive in this rational way. So it's beyond his ability to talk about this, the, the virtue, the, the faith by virtue of the absurd. It's just, it can only come out as contradictions. Mm. You know, one of the things that I like in Judaism is I feel like there's a sense of being able to kind of play, play around with depictions of God and at least in my version of Judaism, which I think is is not only just because it's not Orthodox, but I think is reflected in a lot of, you know, Talmudic tradition is that, you know, we imagine God saying things that, you know, are not limited to what God in the Bible, you know, might have been depicted as saying. And on the one hand, that sort of makes it harder to think about the absoluteness, you know, which is okay with me. And and then I look at at Michael and Janet, and and then I look at Sean and even bad Janet and Glenn and Matt from accounting and, and think that they're like, it's useful to think of beings that are like to play around with ideas of beings that are, don't share some of the life situation of human beings, but, but still, you know, kind of reflect something back to us. I'm not quite sure what I'm, what I'm trying to, to say. And, and I, and it's actually, you know, I think one of the premises of what we do on this Tove podcast is to, you know, I really thought at the beginning was, you know, we sort of talked about the, some of the ethical concepts or even philosophies embedded in Jewish teachings without the theological superstructure. What if we, what if we did without that? But then we keep sort of bumping into these creative ways of using these superior creatures to kind of help us get a look on ourselves. And, and often, I guess what they do, and this is probably what happens in entertainment, is that they they turn back to the humans and and say that there's something uh, like amazing about being human. I, the episode that we just recorded was one of those moments where Michael has to say to Eleanor, like, I'm sorry, I may be a superior being, but I can't do like you're the one who's going to have to save humanity. You know, I can help you do that, but I can't, I can't operate that for you. And, uh, and I like that. It's a good bargain for me. You know, I'm not sure that a, and, and, you know, and, and one of the things I might go think about in terms of Maimonides, again, not, not a TV writer in no way an entertaining guy is that in some ways his, you know, his, 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 his virtue descriptions are much more dynamic than his rule book. And, and many scholars of Maimonides have sort of wondered whether the rule book was something he, felt he had to do because that's what a rabbi did back then, but that he was really more interested in the the philosophy and the ethics, you know, I don't know. Well, it seems to me, John, and, and, and here, correct me if I'm wrong, that so the, the, the Jewish tradition has a strong, at least, you know, in the cultural Jewish tradition I grew up in, a strong ethical and social justice streak. And so if, if you're banking on God, to tell you what's right and wrong. That's a very different approach from putting the ethics up front and saying, well, God may not tell us all of what we need to know. And so we need to sort some of this out ourselves. 
And in sorting ourselves, sorting it out, we are immersing ourselves in ethical reflection. We haven't offloaded it mm. to God. And that, I think, then can bring in an, a strong ethical and eventually social justice streak into a religious tradition. Hmm. Uh, now, does that sound like it resonates with your experience? Because you have much more experience than I Yeah, do. I mean, I, I think that it does. I think there is a willingness. You know, I think the Jewish experience has been that our historic experience has been not perfect and even improving improving our circumstances has not been within reach, you know, right. except in the modern period. And so where where can we? You know, there isn't, there's still this kind of activity of of wondering about what would be better. And then and then over the last couple hundred years, the the ability to actually do that. And and I think there's lots of stuff in the tradition that's probably not the law code always, but some of it gets into the law code, I think seeps into the law code as practices that remind us that the whole thing was based on the exodus from Egypt, a transformation that was very social and political and economic. And and if the law is to get you to imitate the God who brought you out of Egypt, then you should be spending some time thinking about not just checking boxes on the rule book, but uh, but why you're doing it, and whether the as you were saying the community is a friendship or fellow, you know, sages or people on the flourishing journey with you are also, you know, kind of have that in mind. I don't think that's universally understood, you know, within Jewish religious communities, and we happen to be recording this now while some things are going on in the. And one political sector, political religious sector in Israel, which suggests that it's not, you know, what people are thinking about. But I think that I think a lot of us do think of it that way. And it can make the it can make the rule part of it exciting because and I think that, you know, I think that it is sometimes the sometimes you don't want to invent that, you know, you can't make that calculation or you can't figure it, you know, you can't sort of intuit that rule. But if the rule is good and built on some some experience, the collective experience that sort of was was in an ethically positive direction. You could sort of bank that and then move on to the next more complex problem. Save your save your spiritual energy towards something that's less determined, you know, already from before. Yeah, yeah. Well, also, you know, the history of Jewish marginalization gave at least some sectors in the Jewish community a sympathy for people who were marginalized, uh, and that sympathy, you know, the, you know, the solidarity particularly say in the civil rights movement between you know, Jews and blacks, that that sympathy, I think, is going to be, it's not that it can't happen, but it may be less prominent for people who, in traditions where they haven't been as marginalized. It's easier, you know, I was, in, you know, I've spent 30 years teaching in South Carolina where people who were, you know, poor and marginalized were often blamed for their own poverty. And that, I think is a is a failure to relate to people who are the the experience of people who are marginalized. But you can see how that could come from, let's say, a certain reading of the Calvinist tradition, mm-hmm. right, where God's already decided, and you know the, the reason you're impoverished is because that's where you belong. I think if you if you have a history of marginalization, there at least is the possibility of solidarity with people who are marginalized, right? Now, of course, there's another possibility as well, as we know from histories of, of, of you know, abuse of families, that you just look for the other person, the next person to abuse. And, and the, my, you know, the, I, think the, I think you can see a bit of both, but I think the, the, the tradition that I grew up with, with culturally was the tradition of solidarity with marginalization. Yeah, and certainly, and certainly me too. And the one that I think I came to identify with within my more religious living 
is is yet another brand of that too. Yeah. And one of the things I think is uh, going back to something you said before about the the characters in the the good place as being not people who are you know set up naturally to be you know good influences on each other or even on themselves and and uh, I think it is fascinating to think about you know what is the range of character that you know when bumped when bumped into the right you know other people can sort of start to activate those things within each other without any, right. There's no history. These people don't really, they're not part of cultures and history. I mean, they, they are sort of in a, you know, they have ethnic identifications, but it's not brought to bear as a, as a story. And, and season, season four is interesting in that. Who, am I echoing? Am I echoing? No. It's weird. That's weird. Season four is, is interesting in that they bring in these other people who don't even have this personal history. And they sort of wonder about like, can we, we were talking this on one of the, the season three ending episode. Can we make these people our friends in the way that we've become friends? You know, somehow they rub us wrong. They come from some legacies in the case of Brent, which are bad and, and harder to overcome. And uh, it's a sort of alternative more about human nature generally than about anyone's, you know, cultural legacies or, or historical situations. Yeah. But, but like all friendships, right. Before they develop their history together, they didn't have one. Yeah. And so they're, they're coming from backgrounds, but the backgrounds don't emphasize so much the cultural traditions as the personal histories of the people that, that come together. Jim, I mean, Chidi studies Kant, but he's African. Mm-hmm. So the, you know, the culture that he comes from is not, it doesn't play a role. What plays a role is his philosophical, personal philosophical background. And I think that's true for, for, all of the characters when they come together. It's their personal histories that, that begin to intersect rather than their cultural backgrounds. Yeah, and as, as it has to be, I mean, I don't expect more. There are only four seasons and they could only, they only chew off so much. Yeah, uh, and, and you know, and it's gotta be entertaining and how, you know, you're giving, you know, you give enough backstories that people are gonna turn the channel. Yeah, I have kind of a, a, a sort of a two sides of a coin question, which is do, you know, what do, professional philosophers uh, perhaps think about people like me who, you know, took a few courses and read a few books and now stand in front of lots of people and try to talk about these things. Is that a, is that frustrating to see what gets done with ethical, with ethical philosophy in the world? Or are you have any advice for us on how we can do a better job of being the, the intermediaries on that? Yeah. Well, it it, it depends in part on on who's doing the talking. (laughs) So there are people who won't read or think very much about it. And then they'll say, here's my view, right? And it reminded me of, I was in a cab in New York City years ago. And the guy says, what do you do? I said, I teach. And he says, what do you teach? And I said, well, I, I teach philosophy. And he says, yeah, well, here's my philosophy. Never give a sucker an even break, right? That, that you know, that, that guy could get a little more study in before he professes. But, but I think... I'm going to speak for myself and then and then give a caveat. I think people jumping into ethics and trying to do ethical reflection, I think is great. And trying to, to pass it along is great. And I try to write in such a way that it makes sense. That if you're not a philosopher, it'll still make a lot of sense. You know, whether or not you agree, it's at least part of a conversation you can you can participate in. So my, you know, my advice is to you know, keep reading and keep thinking. But it sounds like that's what you do anyway. There is there are is a whole other raft of philosophers who think of philosophy as simply solving problems in conversation with other 
advanced philosophers. So they're not terribly worried, it seems, about the real world implications of all this. They just want to get the ideas right. And there's a, there's a, there's a value in that. I mean, I read some of those people, but, but I think that the role of philosophy and particularly ethics as speaking to a wider public often gets lost in philosophical, in the, in the philosophical culture. Fortunately, that's changing. There are more and more philosophers beginning to try to write for a more public audience. But the specialization is still there. And sometimes people who write for a wider audience are looked down upon by people who are engaged in specialization. Like the reason you're doing this is you can't, you know, you're not smart enough to think about this thing, things we're thinking about. And, and do you think that the, you know, labeling things using the, the terminology and the analytical frameworks, the three main Western notions of ethics and stuff, you know, is, is important and, and would transform either people or society as opposed to not using that and just, you know, making up our reflections based on whatever, based on all this stuff that might be kicking around. Well, I would put it this way that we can think of the, the three traditions as, as tools, right? Tools to, to jog our thought. So, you know, we're thinking about the consequences of things. We're thinking about what my motivation is. We're thinking about what kind of person I am. And these theories can give us tools to do that. It's not that we have to see the world simply through one or the other of these theories, but that they, they give us, allow us ways to reflect. And it's not that you can't be a moral person without it. There are plenty of people who are moral without it. But there is an advantage in having these tools, right, for you to... To begin to wonder what you what what you're on about, and what you ought to be on about. So I think there's a real advantage to having them, but I don't think that they are necessary for a moral life. There have been studies, I haven't seen them, I just heard about them. That ethical <laughs> philosophers aren't generally more moral right, than anybody else. I I, I can I, I don't find that hard to imagine because oftentimes these theories are just things I'm studying and writing about, not necessarily things I'm trying to integrate. But the role of somebody like you can be to, to bring these theories to people who actually want to use them to ask about their lives, not to ask how, just how the theory works. Mm-hmm. There's so many dimensions. And I think what I, what I have come to appreciate, you know, the, the arc of the show started with a lot of Blackboard stuff about philosophy in the first couple of seasons. And then I think there is this kind of transition, even though there's this talk about the point system and and improving it, even you know based on that, that 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 there is this sense that these other concepts, which and I, you know I wrote down, I think the you know the 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 titles of your books in terms of decency, meaning, care, etc., are these you know, and they can't be quantified and they can't be you know solved as two x plus three y, which for people, someone like me can be at times frustrating. I'd like to know. I'd like to know when I need to do more. And I'd like to know I'm not just increasing my score, but that there's some sense, not my score, but increasing whatever. Even if it's 10 dimensions, I'd like to know where I am on those dimensions if I'm going in the right direction. But I, but I more and more I'm trying to listen to the people to say, well, it can't, that can't be done. So do it, you know, try to approach it this yeah. other way. Yeah. But one of the things I think the show also does is it you can say that. Being in a community of other flawed beings that you care about will make you better. But that's not going to have the same power as showing it. And so they don't lecture about it. It just happens. 
right? and people can see it and relate to it. And I think that's that in a way is more powerful. You know, it's the, it's the power that things like film and fiction can have mm-hmm. to to bring you to places that if I just tell you, it's going to be something that sticks in your head, but that doesn't hook onto your life at all. So you are not fundamentally envious that these folks who have probably taught many more people than you have, you know, on subjects you care deeply about. That's not a, you know, a source of, damn, they get to do that. They have beautiful pastel colored sets and sound editors and I stand up oh, yeah. people and talk. Yeah. Um, no, in fact, you know, I, I, I feel just, uh, there's a stroke of luck, right. That I got to be involved in it at all. And I'm lucky because, you know, Mike's book, you know, how to be perfect, which, you know, I was, I, I was advising him on my feeling is great. You can, you know, you're, you're reaching so many people, so many more people that I, than I could possibly reach. But, you know, there's, there is the egotistical thing. Like, I, I had a piece of that, right? I, but the thing about Mike is that he wants to get it right. He's not being sloppy about it. So one story that I've told people is Simon Schuster was trying to pry the manuscript from his hands, right? There's like, we really have to bring this in because he's mm-hmm. correcting, correcting and correcting and I see the email, look, Mike, we really need the manuscript. After which I get an email from him and say, Todd, there's a footnote on page 146 about this thing. Can, is this right? Can you go back to the article and make sure it's right? And if a person's going to write philosophy for a broad audience, that's who you want. Mm. Somebody who cares enough to get the details right. Mm. Well, I was strived to be that because as I say, when we Shabbat happens and unlike Simon and Schuster, it can't be put off. <laughs> the, the goods have to be delivered and the words have to be spoken <laughs> at that hour. <laughs> I will strive for that. My final question, Todd May, which we ask everybody on their first time here is, is there just anybody you want to give a, a nice shout to who was an early influence on your path or discovery around ethical philosophy? An ethical philosophy. Oh, you know, kind of whether it was actual philosophy or just kind of starting to think about things like this in these kinds of ways. Oh, well, uh, I think the person who, who put me on the path of philosophy as much as anybody was, I, I went to undergraduate to Brown and I wasn't a philosophy major, but I studied with a guy named Richard Schmidt, who is, I believe, although this is, you know, was 45 years ago, I think he's still alive. And he was an existentialist, and a Marxist. And I, I liked his existentialism. I found the discussions of Marxism interesting. Ultimately, I didn't, didn't go there, but he, he, he made me concerned about the ideas and their implications. And so that was, a, that was an early influence. The, the person I probably have worked on more over the last, say, 10 or 12 years it's a philosopher from North Carolina, Susan Wolf, who's just brilliant. I think she's probably the best living value theorist. And a lot of my work takes off or, or these intersects with stuff that she said. Well, thank you. And, and thank you, Todd, for taking this time to, to talk with me and all of our listeners. Well, thanks again, John, for having me. And, and it's great because now I know a little bit more about the Jewish ethical tradition than I knew an hour and some ago. <laughs> and I know more about some things too. Thank you so much. So you take care. You and, too. Uh, and and have, have a good holiday season. And you too.
And that's all for this very special episode of Tove. If you've got any suggestions of other special episodes you'd like to see us do, drop a note to tove at tovegoodplace.com or share them with us on social media at tovegoodplace. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us on your podcast app and recommend us to other fans of The Good Place or Ethical Philosophy. Todd May has a website, toddmayphilosopher.com, with links to his books, and you can email him at toddmayphilosopher at gmail.com. We'll link to him on our show notes at tovegoodplace.com. I'm John Spiracevet, and my website is rabbijohn.net, and I'm on social media at rabbijs3. Thanks again for listening, and to adapt what Mark Evan Jackson, who plays Sean, says at the end of every official Good Place podcast, now go learn more about something good. Bum, 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 bum.